Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, uh, it's Martin here, Electronically Yours as always. Today's episode is with a multi-instrumentalist, keyboard player, viola player, violin player, uh, Japanese flute, you name it, synthesizer player predominantly, Billy Curry, who's been in uh, many extremely influential bands, starting obviously with Ultravox, but also um, Visage, of course, and Fate of Grey, and he was basically part of the scene. That entire scene round Midjur, John Fox, uh, Rust Egan, he was a go-to kind of person at that time, uh, uh, both as a band member, but also as a co-writer. Um, and reading between the lines of uh, our, our discussion, which you'll hear shortly, it seems like he's a little bit of a frustrated writer. So he's done a lot of solo albums up to the current day, uh, and I think he's very proud of his work. Uh, maybe he would have liked to have been involved a bit more in the writing of a lot of things when he, in his earlier career, I sense. But um, he was always well-liked. We got on well. I've known him for, God knows, 40 years, possibly, on and off. I've not seen him for ages before today. Um, but a uh, really nice guy. Um, here we go. Here he is, Billy Curry. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah. You okay? Not seeing you yet. Pardon? No, I'm not seeing the video yet. Can you see me? No. Oh, All right. Okay. I think you have to switch it on bottom left somewhere. Bottom left. What? Where it says start video. Yeah, start video. Yeah. There you oh, go. Yeah. Cool. How cool. are you, man? Good. Good nice to, to see you. You look very tiny there. I've got lots of ceiling, not much of you. <laughs> I've put, I put the blinds on because otherwise oh, right. there's too, too oh, much right. light behind me, although there's quite a lot now. Yeah, it's all right. Don't worry. No, it's fine. It's it's only for audio anyway. It's just a nice record to have. So how are you keeping? Good. Yeah, very well. It's a bit crazy at the moment. We've just got a puppy last week. and it, She's lovely. She's a she. We've always had boys. And uh, she's fantastic. Uh, and she's biting everything, so it's a bit mad. And just after we got the puppy, would you believe, my son came down with bloody COVID. Oh. So he's stuck up in his, in his bedroom. We, we're taking food up there, you know, and, and, and down here we're running around after the puppy. But it's, it's fine, you know, and it's just pretty crazy times at the moment that we're just c coming out of, aren't we, really? Yeah, I don't know if you've done any live work since... Uh since this we just did a few gigs recently and it was very emotional i have to say it was very um yeah it, it was almost like you look into everyone's eyes backstage and all the artists and all the crew and everything and they've all been through their own private hell yeah uh, and but then you realize that's the same story for every individual person in the audience yeah and so it makes it a much more emotionally connected experience mm. uh, i think yeah, it, imagine, yeah otherwise for years it's just felt you know you do it as well as you can obviously but it feels like a job and uh, now that it doesn't anymore to me yeah it's changed everything hasn't it 
It's I mean, it's pretty emotional playing live anyway, but then to have this extra special thing, I haven't been playing live, but I would imagine I can understand what you're saying. Yeah, you've got that extra thing that everybody's looking up at you and they're like, thank God we're out again. And Yeah, you know, and thank, mixing with random people, you know. And listening to music and, and just in being free, for God's sake. Yeah, yeah we've all been in our little bubbles, haven't we, you know. Yeah. Um, what um, uh, Have you got any plans to play live? Uh, not at the moment, no. <laughs> Come on, Billy, get, in, get it together. <laughs> to you, I might. <laughs> listening to your explanation of it, I might. No, oh, well. I, do, I do love the contact with people. I really do. I, it comes over like I'm not so much a people's person, but in actual fact, I just used to love playing playing live. Uh, and uh, but I'm also I also like to be off by myself, just thinking about my music, you know. And that tends to just uh, off be a little bit more powerful with me. It's all, always been a bit like that with me. Good, good, uh, good Yorkshire lad. Um, <laughs> but the, um, I've always been a big admirer of your influence on the bands that you've been in. Um, I mean, we've known each other for God knows. I mean, you know, not great, not close friends or anything, but we've we've been acquaintances for nigh on forty years, haven't we? Yeah, really, absolutely. And um, and um, you know, we've been through similar kind of band experiences in the late 70s early 80s and 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 stuff i'm really curious to get your kind of take on very on various things because you you know a lot of people who i interview uh self-taught and you clearly are not uh i mean you everybody teaches themselves to a certain extent but you were traditionally trained weren't you yeah you had a lot of training and in fact you were uh, at the royal college of music is that right uh, well, I, I got a place at the Royal Academy of Music. Royal Academy, sorry. Uh, um, um, but I, I trained a lot of my a lot of my training was at the Huddersfield School of Music. Right. And um, do do you, are you grateful for that? I presume you are. I, I am. Yeah, I am really now in retrospect. But it wouldn't have appeared so at the time because I did a quick. Uh, explosive get out right in the middle of my <laughs> end. <laughs> I just uh, disappeared, and I so they must think I was very ungrateful. But uh, you know, it's water under a bridge from a long time ago now. But I, I was, I was very grateful because, I mean, I was looked after. I was, I was looked after. I, I'd got um, in a way that I was given a chance because uh, I, I was. Uh, it wasn't looking too good for me. I mean, I, I didn't pass my 11 plus and I went to a, a pretty sort of dead basic, quite depressing school called Mount Pleasant, uh, just in just out, in Huddersfield, just outside Huddersfield. And so I'm grateful because in the first year, I was looking for something to pick myself up because I felt such a failure. I had an elder brother that was three years older than me that was very academic and he'd just gone to the new grammar school, you know, so this has got all the makings of, of a suicide, really. Isn't it? I'm joking. <laughs> so I, I won't bang on too much about this. But to, to cut to a cut, cut to we're the, here. We're here to bang on about you. That's what we're here for. But, but the thing is, to cut to the chase, what happened in my first year was that um, an orchestra came and just played a small orchestra in a chapel. We had a, we used to have an ensembles in a chapel, the morning assemblies. 
And that's where I played eventually in the school orchestra every morning for four years. And, so, and it had a balcony. And so in some ways, it was. when I think back of it now, it feels like a gig, you know, right. to me, because it had a balcony. And I got excited about people up on the balcony and stuff. But, it, but, but first of all, it was just this orchestra playing and saying that you can learn the instrument. And it became a, something I could reach for. I had to talk my parents into a working-class guy. Mm bugger all money, and lived in a lovely uh, part of uh, Huddersfield, three miles to the west, at a place called Netherton at the top of a hill. So I have nothing to complain about. I had a great childhood, a lovely countryside and everything. Oh, the Huddersfield is a – I mean, it didn't sound like it, the, the name Huddersfield. <laughs> no, it doesn't, doesn't. Doesn't sound very attractive, but the town itself is one of the most beautiful towns in, in, in Yorkshire, I think, oh, um, for its size. I really like it. I've always liked it. The the hills around there are beautiful. Yeah, lovely hills. Yeah. yeah. yeah so so I, I got the chance to learn the violin, and I think I just got on onto something. And I think in some ways I got onto it. Uh, uh, the impetus and energy was because I felt so knocked by fairly my eleven plus because I was like a popular kid, and I I did well at maths. I did I had things like when I was at primary school, I'd get all my maths. Uh, equations correct and I remember getting these stars for it through when, when this teacher came so it, but it just all went a bit uh, tits up when I went to the junior school when they started introducing other stuff like I don't know didn't we did algebra or something I don't know I just lost the plot really <laughs> but there was a lot of uh, arithmetic in music and so I could bring that back and I could associate with what I was good at before it all went a bit skew if with learning for the 11 plus. So I, I got a lot of energy and I soon found myself, I had a good teacher. This is the thing, I, I am grateful. You know, there were people being looked after, uh, people that didn't have uh, the money, you know, or, you know, and, and that I really was lucky. Because I was immediately, as soon as I started working in the youth orchestra, part of the youth orchestra, all the viol violinists were lucky because they'd, they'd started when they were about five. Uh, I'd start till, till I was 11, but that's simply because they could afford and, and we couldn't. Um, but, uh, but, and also, you know, it was great at school because, like I said, I was on the stage every morning. And that was a really nice feeling. I just like being on the stage, uh, playing in the school orchestra. You know, you'd start with a, a classical composition and then they'd do the service and then there'd be a hymn, so you'd play that. And so I felt... Yeah, people, uh, yeah, people d uh, really underestimate the impact that um, teaching music and having music as part of the everyday routine in schools, how important that is to people, to give a sense of roundness and humanity to to your experience at junior and, and secondary schools. Yeah. And this has all been railed back now, isn't it, by the current government? And yeah, I, I, just, I can't bear it. It just breaks my heart. I mean, I teach music now. And well, do you? I, I, yeah. So, um, so you learned violin was the main thing for you, was it, in the early yeah. days? Yeah. And viola? And uh, uh, No, no the, viol the viola came second. Um, I, I, I don't want... To tell me if I'm getting boring because it's, it's a fair... You're not getting boring, carry on. Okay, it's just that when I got to sort of the fourth year, uh, they decided that I was able um, 
the technique, my ability was good enough to go to the music college. They were looking out for me, you know, and they, they talked to the uh, lead uh, CEO of the uh, music department, and they organised for me to uh, start learning the viola in my fourth year. So while I was uh, still playing violin, they taught me viola on Saturday morning. But I mean, that's that stopped me from playing football. So immediately I was picked out at school as being, hang on, you, you're different from us, you know, you're a bloody swat. All of a sudden I was this mm, puff. Uh, fan, puff, yeah, was a fancy <laughs> pants, intelligent geezer who thinks he's going off to college. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I got uh, I got bullied at school because of the same thing, really. Uh, whereas I'd much rather have been the captain of the football team like you were, weren't you? Or you had to give yeah. all that stuff up. Yeah. So people found out that you were learning music. Uh, were you learning music at school as well? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was—I just had a natural aptitude for it. But the, I never got any formal training or anything. But uh, I was always kind of at the top of my class at the school, and they would top of your class on, on everything, yeah. On music, well, just generally, yeah. Oh, and, wow. uh, I never really—I wasn't a SWAT in any shape or form. So and, that's uh, why you were bullied, yeah. Yeah, that's why I was bullied at school. And and then when I got to secondary school, they wanted me to go to, um, uh, you know, to apply for the Oxbridge exam. And then I, 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 my parents were so poor, they couldn't even afford to subsidise me going to any any university, let alone Oxford and Cambridge. So it never happened. Oh, so, I mean, people don't understand the kind of nature. Couldn't, couldn't you, I've, couldn't you, I've lived in London for 35 years now, and people in the southeast can't really dig the, what poverty is, you know, in, uh, or was. <laughs> you've you know? been through, yeah. Could, couldn't they just get a grant, a small grant, to enable you to yeah, do training? But you still you'd you'd need to you'd need to top that up, and they didn't have any money at spare money at all. You know, my dad was a steel worker, and uh, my mum was just uh, you know uh, looking after all the kids, and we had no money. We often run out of money before my dad got his wage every Friday. You know, and um, I'm not I'm not uh, blubbering. We, we, we used to hear stuff like that. Me and my brother, yeah, uh, he was an older brother, is three years older, and we used to hear these terrible rows in the kitchen on Thursday. When he brought his wage back, yes, because <laughs> she kept drumming into him that he didn't quite, un he didn't seem to understand about certain things. And we used to hear these rows, and well, he did understand, but they just didn't have trying to make the money stretch out. But I, I, I must admit, Martin, then into here or your experience, I, I was just really lucky. I was got through by the skin of my teeth. And later on, when I was at music, got to music college, my brother was very resentful towards me because it turns out that they held back on him being able to go to university. Oh, so no. And I got it a bit in the neck from my brother, you know. And, and there was a point, ironically, that when I walked out of the music college, this was 1969, I joined a band immediately. There was this drummer that was from Huddersfield, and they were in Huddersfield, and I, I jammed with them and <coughs> left and just disappeared. And I was in a commune in Norfolk for about three months, jamming, learning how to improvise, and in London as well. Great, great. And then later on in the year, of, just before Christmas, we did a gig back in Huddersfield, and I got kicked out. And they wouldn't let me back home unless I got a job. 
So I was I was at the foot of um, I should try selling that to my son. I, <laughs> I, so I was in the same bedroom with my brother. He had the big double bed, and I was at the end on a camp bed, going to some plastics company called Plessis. You know, getting up at like six yes. thirty in the morning while he was going off. Uh, he was in in, in insurance. Uh, he was travelled across to Leeds, and can you imagine us two in the same? In the same I'd completely blown it, and I'm going to some terrible bloody job. And he's, <laughs> to, and he's in the same bedroom as me. You know, mind you, we, the, the lucky thing about it is we both got to get up about the same time, about six <laughs> thirty. People can't relate to that. I, w- I was looking at your um, your website, and uh, there's some—is it your website anyway? Um, yeah. There were some lovely uh, photos of you when you were young. In various uh, um, uh, things like the Polycordia Quartet. Oh yeah, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You see, that's the thing. It was like almost like pre-getting into bands, being in a quartet. The good thing about being in the being a viola player, a good viola player, was well, there wasn't that many of them, and also I could get in with the best uh, fiddle players. So the Polycordia Quartet consisted of two brothers. Uh, Rayford Kitchen and Vaughan Kitchen, uh, quite posh names, no. and, and uh, it was lovely, you know. But I was also obviously aware of the uh, the class thing, you know. Uh, but it was oh yeah, it was, it was just great to be uh, to be doing it, and we did some competitions. Yeah, yeah. So I read also that you were um, you always been interested in art, and and a bit like me, you know, interested in the um, the stuff that's on the periphery. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly. I love pop and rock and Bowie and you know and Roxy music and blah 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 and all that stuff. But I really, the thing that differentiates people like you and me from a lot of other people at the time is we. It seems like we were similar in as much as we uh, liked the stuff that were on the periphery. So you were, you know, you liked, um, you know, Bartok and Schoenberg and. You know, Verays and and I was the I was the same, and it, myself and Phil Oakey. Well, you got into were, stuff like that as well, yeah. Yeah, we were Brilliant. we would listen to um, like experimental improvisational jazz, right, and, right, and and computer uh, early computer um, electronic uh, electronic uh, designed by written by computer though, but programmed by Zanakis and stuff like that. Yeah, there were some and, guys at the time, like at that time when. Uh, Farise was around, um, there was another guy, that they, they, they would stop the orchestra. This is the only way they could bring it into the form of classical music. They'd stop the orchestra and turn on a tape recorder and then you'd hear all this electronic mute sound and then that would stop and then the orchestra would start up again, you know. Uh, I can't remember, that might have been Farise. No, I think it was someone else that began with H. I've forgotten that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So you were out there ex- Listening to yeah, yeah. Stuff, yeah, yeah, but yeah. But of course, we can we can play any instruments apart but from. Don't you think it just gets into your head, doesn't it? The atmosphere yeah. and the sounds and the feelings of that weird time, the nineteen forties, and the dreadful feeling yeah. of Europe after in the war and after the war, and it's uh, it's you can hear it. It's expressed through the string sounds, you know. And, yeah, kind and of the notes, uh, and the notes. an angular an angular kind of 
Well, not just dissonance, but it's like, a, you know, the the blending of the worlds of music concrete and found sounds and all that stuff. Yeah. It just fascinated me. And yeah. it's only later on that I realised a lot of the bands that I liked at that time were just as um, interested in experimenting with um, tape manipulation as they were being, like, traditional musicians. Like, you know, I've become friends with the BBC Radiophonic Workshop now oh, well. who who are... Uh, who, do these amazing presentations showing you how like the Doctor Who theme tune was built up, and mm-hmm. and there's no, there aren't any synthesizers on that. Well, well, sorry, I there aren't, sorry, there aren't any, there aren't any synthesizers. All right, yeah. On that, so it's all, uh, uh, f- it's all uh, found sounds that they record onto tape and then manipulate the tape and then splice it together and create. The only thing there is is an. Uh, a tuning oscillator which does the and all that. Mm. So things like that, I didn't, I, I kind of intuitively understood at the time, mm. but didn't really know how to do it. And then, of course, synthesizers come along and it all makes sense. And another thing that st- struck me when I was looking at your um, background, you said you were, you liked a band called Spirit. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. There was a song they did, which is one of my favourite songs, called Nature's Way. Do you know that song? Nature's Way. Nature's Way. Nature's Way. Uh, no, I don't think so. It sounds oh, clear. Yeah. But the one that struck me the most is called something like Mechanical Man. Or, yes. Yeah, yeah Mechanical That's Man. Right. It's almost like a bit futuristic type um, title. And the reason why I like that is because I was getting a bit blown away in 1967 by the psychedelia movement. Yeah. And, of course, I, I was blown away by Terry Riley. You know, yeah. Some mis- mischievous friend. I think it was the guy, the drummer of the band I ended up joining when I was 19. I'd be in the in some someone's flat, and I remember him putting on Terry Riley specifically to see yeah. what, re- what my reaction would be, you know. But well, the Terry thing- Riley in C, was it? Yeah, yeah, in C. No, the one he played was uh, Rainbows in Curved Air. But yeah. to go back to, um, like he mentioned, um, uh, oh, Spirit, yeah. yeah. Uh, what I was getting, what I was interested in was that these people in bands were feeling like inventors and composers. You know, they were beginning to feel like, hang on a minute, this, this could be where I should be, really. Yeah, uh, yeah. Thinking, you know, and because... When I, when I was at music college, when I loved harmony, but I immediately wanted to experiment with it. So in the second year, I had this lovely woman that taught us called Mrs. Clare. She let me play some compositions. And um, you can imagine, can't you? I, sh- I should have been slapped around the face with that. <laughs> no. And, and my, my violin teacher, viola teacher, Mr. Warren, he was an amazing artist, Mr. Warren, his approach towards me, I, I believed, I just worshipped him. I just loved the way he looked. He was an artist. He chopped his own hair and he had jumpers on back to front, bits of paint <laughs> all over him, baggy trousers. And it was brilliant, blonde hair, blonde. it looked amazing. And he found out about this. And, and when I had a lesson, he, he took me, took issue with it and said, I've heard about you playing in the, in the harmony class what is it that you think you've got that people want to hear? Interesting. You know, like, uh, it really belittled, I felt belittled. Mm. And that's what he was deliberately doing. 
and, and it sounds like I've made a big issue out of this throughout my life, but I'm telling telling you the truth. It was actually no, it's, it's interesting, but, but I do I do think I, I do think that people in music colleges and the further in the classical world, it's almost like you've got to be from a certain as it almost as a certain class that that you worthwhile to be able to. Uh, communicate uh, and uh, so when i heard about spirit it was a bit like hang on there's something happening now and these people are getting are saying we're getting older this and we're going to do it ourselves because that that a mechanical man as a form which is slow you might have a bit of vocal in it and then it speeds up and then it's got this amazing quite amazing guitar riff and i just love the fact that the the the, the guitarist made a big deal out of the, the ninth interval you know, oh, yeah. I, was, I was really into intervals and harmony and such, and I'm sure you are as well. Uh, yeah. I, I, I'm not a theorist in any by any stretch, but I've picked up quite a lot over the years, as you oh, do. Sure, yeah. but uh, I mean, <laughs> when he came in and when came in on that, it was holding a ninth, and you know, mind you, I can't remember what um, drugs we were taking at the time. Ah, uh, well, that's probably because <laughs> they were good drugs. Yeah. <laughs> um. Tell us about when you moved to Portobello Road then. Oh, that Portobello Road was, was in 1969. Uh, right. I was with this band. We, we, we were starving, really. We didn't really have much money, and but we were crashing at some people's place at, just off Portobello Road, near Basin Street Studios where... Oh, where yeah. I mean, so I'm Yeah, Basin Street Studios. I remember we were talked about it. And, of course, I ended up working there later but this was 1969 <clears throat> um yeah we were just crashing there i mean we we did we did a jam with uh, the fleetwood mag guitarist uh, the one that ended up going having to leave the band that was the year they had to leave the band because he had some issues mental issues right. i forgot his name God's truth. The main guitarist who started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we had a jam with him, and I can distinctly remember it was at Eel Pie Island. Uh, it was like a fe open air festival. I mean, you know, it was the hippie time, really. Pink Fairies were top of the bill. Uh, and um, But I can distinctly remember him having some empathy to me when I was jamming on the, the viola. Peter Green. Yeah. Peter Green, yeah. But I was so nervous that I, I did some crazy ad hoc sort of thing on the viola which was almost like whole tone or something and, and when right. i did it i thought god pull yourself together bill you know <laughs> but I, I didn't like blues i didn't like flat and seventh chords you know so i, I don't i prefer to do odd things like with major sounds but but that i didn't really like what i was doing I, I was nervous when i did that and he just picked it up and played it back to me uh, in the same way he just heard it and played it back to me peter wow i was like what <laughs> but unfortunately, I heard he had some problems later on. No, nothing happened too much at that time. But of course, my friend, the drummer, Wayne Goddard, is not around anymore. God, I mean, he died in 1975, you know, bloody drugs and stuff. Yeah. The thing is, he took me to see um, to bands at the Roundhouse in 1969. Wow. Uh, Did you see Pink Floyd? Huh? No, no, I didn't. But... Uh, um, yeah, I saw some psychedelic bands. I didn't get to see Pink Floyd. But Yamashtao, I, I, I saw your Yamashtao. Uh, there was like a theatre thing as well, Japanese theatre. Uh, but it was, 
it was all a bit of a haze then. And before I knew it, like I said, I got kicked out and I was back at home. But it was just great to have a taste of London. And from yeah. that taste, I really did like it. I mean, at that time, because we were starving, I had a friend who worked at the Hilton and he was letting me come in through the back of the Hilton into the catering area and getting uh, a free meal. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about meeting, uh, meeting John Fox. Oh, well, John Fox, yeah. I mean... <laughs> Uh, the uh, yeah, that was it, it was when, in nine, when I left uh, the um, music college, and I'd, I was still around in Huddersfield in, in 1970. And there was this drama teacher wanted to do some performance art, and he got in touch with me through this guy who was in the drama department, a friend of mine. So we ended up doing this performance art thing, and it really became called Ritual Theatre. We just did a bit of it. And then, and then we disbanded and I went off and I was in another band in Bristol <coughs> with the guitarist that became the only ones. Oh, right. that, that didn't work. I got blown off stage because my uh, amplifier on my violin was just so rubbish. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I just got blown off stage. But anyway, um, yeah, so, and, so I'd done some other work. I, I spent some time in Bath as well playing with a, this singer called Jeff Stars, who had put a band together called Interview, they signed to Virgin. So I, did, I was doing some things with singers, really, and bands, yeah, yeah. learning about the idea of a song, but improvising on the viola. And, and then I was called up, um, that thing with Jeff Stars didn't work out, and I was living in London, I was living in a squat in Islington, actually, and then I was called back up to do some more with this performance art group called Ritual Theatre in 1972. And we did a lot of it, and we did some gigs in Holland, and we did the ICA, we did the Sheffield Crucible, up at the Edinburgh Festival. Great, I really enjoyed it, because it was very expressive. It was all improvisation. It was totally wow. off the wall, with a cellist uh, and a flautist, and sort of a guy who played, uh, Clive Bell, who also played Japanese flute. And Colin Wood, I don't know where Colin Wood is now, but uh, he was an amazing cellist. So that, that was a great experience, avant-garde sort of thing, really, but I, and connecting with performers physically, right? So that was that. And then because we didn't get a grant with the Arts Council, I thought, oh, here we go, we've got this snobbery come up again. Yeah. There's some guy called Peter, some other, who had been getting this money for ages, and he was in South America somewhere. And I was a bit hecked off because we were trying to bring it to the people here, study of ritual and so i was hacked off about that and i thought right i'm just going to do music now i've got enough of this uh, but i went home and unfortunately i had to have a, do a terrible job again it, it wasn't terrible it was just physical jobs i had to do occasionally like stacking booze you know a booze warehouse but having done that i enjoyed it because it was just camaraderie with friends in Huddersfield. yeah that's such yeah. a great time you know yeah, yeah. like crazy drinking the booze at Christmas. But, uh, you know, just a normal life, uh, going out on Friday night and Saturday night and just being normal, right? And then I became a painter, painter a paste artist as well. So I could turn... What, up does, that mean? what does that mean? Uh, well, in, in, the, in the days when they laid out books, they literally had to paste the pages on each page before, uh, to make the actual books. And I can't remember much now. But my part as a paste-up artist was just doing corrections where you take it out. There was no computers involved because it was like 1973. Yeah. I think yeah. it took photocopies of it or something. So each each uh, page had to be 
laid out. It's such a long time ago now, I can't remember. I didn't, <coughs> I can't remember much about it because I got sacked pretty quick. It was just, it was just, <laughs> it was just great to turn up in trendy clothes, you know, instead of <laughs> turning up in mucky jeans. Anyway, so anyway, so one of the performers, Eddie Francis, that had been in the ritual theatre, he was down in London and he just got in touch with me on the phone and said, what the hell are you doing? Get your ass back down here, you know, come on. I'm, I'm performing uh, at this, this band's kicks. I said, performing? What are you mean performing? Well, like ritual theatre, sort of, just doing movement and whatever I feel to this band called Tiger Lily. And I could introduce you to John, uh, not John, he was called Dennis, then Dennis Lee's a nice guy, he's, he's from Lancashire. Uh, I'm sure you could get on. <laughs> not, not just because he's Lancashire, actually there's a good chance we couldn't. No, yeah, you know, but it was like, you know, come on, you know, put out the bait, really. And, and I thought, yeah, the time's right. This was early 2000 and, oh, sorry, this was early in 1973. And I got my backside down there because there was this artist guy that I knew was at Camberwell studying. And he let me just take over his flat while they went on holiday with his wife in Clapham North. So I had a base. It was for about six weeks as well. And in that time, I met up with John in their rehearsal space, which was at King's Cross, which was fantastic to have a rehearsal space which was just from this guy who had shops used to have this space where they used to make up the dummies and dress the dummies for the yeah yeah all oh, right okay and we used to have the room at the back and when i saw how he'd got it together and everything and i talked to john you know it was nice sorry dennis it was so nice to talk to him uh, i felt like he'd really got something going and i liked the way it was down to earth as well and realistic you know he'd got a place to rehearse Everyone in the band doesn't bring money where he's into the band. They have to sort that out themselves. We haven't got any money. Uh, and, uh, you know, but he laid it on me straight. And and then I went up to his flat up in Highgate. He had a flat up in Highgate. And he was at the Royal College of Art at the time. And I just played the violin for him. Uh, I'd just gone back onto the violin then because I'd actually sold my viola. Oh, no. God knows why I've done that. I bought a guitar, a Gibson SG. God. <laughs> I must have been mad. And I'd actually got caught up with a Scientologist as well. No. Yeah. Yeah, and I paid some money to them as well. I was a company. No. no. I was lost. I was lost, mate. And, uh, yeah, so I got away from that anyway. I played a, a lot with a, a musician uh, when I was in the Scientologist thing down at St. Hill, and I actually did some gigs and, and when I buggered off, they just left me alone because I was obviously a musician. They were quite soft on me. But uh, so that's that. And when I played for John, I, I, I was back on the violin. And I remember in, the, in the, this place in Highgate. And I've been doing a lot of improvisation to songs with this guy, Jeff Stars in Bath. And, and so I was quite used to it, really. And he seemed to like what I did. And we seemed to hit it off. I was playing improvising violin to his songs, basically. Hmm. And, and uh, I got the thumbs up and I was in. Yeah. And I was in. But I used to have to stand in the rehearsal place, absolutely deafening. Uh, and most of the time, not having to do it, not doing anything. And I just had this sort of cheap Japanese pickup on the fiddle. And then just every now and again, I used to play violin, simply because you can't have violin on every track, you know. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm friends with uh, Richard Strange from Doctors of Madness, and he's yeah. been on the podcast as well. And they used to have an electric violinist. 
in their band. And I was always so impressed with the fact, I thought you must have nicked that idea from them, of course, stupid. But, uh, uh, you know, they, I remember seeing you on various TV shows. I was always impressed with your presence on the screen because you get you engage with the camera, you engage with the audience. It was really interesting. Anyway, sorry, carry on. You're talking about me, sorry. I'm talking about you, yeah. That's very nice of you to say. Thanks very much, Martin. That's 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 nice of you to say. Um, yeah, there weren't very many violinists around. The violinist from Richard Strange, I saw him a few times. I would have seen him, but I can't remember much about that. But like you said, there weren't very many uh, violinists around. But I was pleased to get back on the violin again because it was more of a fitted in a band easier. It yeah. could cut through more, you know. Uh, and... Um, when I was with the band in 1969, I remember they played me Hot Rats, and there was John Lou Pond, yeah. and they kept saying, can't you play like him? I said, I'm playing a video game. <laughs> yeah. didn't sound like that. No, so, so, yeah, so there wasn't that many people to learn from. But eventually, uh, yeah, we did that for three years. And again, I had to do more crappy jobs working in a warehouse at Dunhill's at Green Park on Piccadilly. But I loved, I liked doing it because I liked being part of the human race. It kept my feet. Yeah, me yeah. too. I, I've got quite fond memories of the kind of, that, that kind of work because you know what? You, you, your mind is free while you're doing the physical work, but you've still got friends around you. Yeah. Uh, like, I quite I like know, that. Still, that. Yeah. Did you do some quite physical work? Yeah. I was, I was a training manager at the co-op. Well, I was, <laughs> I was boning bacon and stacking shelves and yeah. hacking off giant pieces of cheese and giving, <laughs> giving them away for free to pensioners and stuff. Oh, nice one. Yeah, but the thing is, you've got some you, your intelligent and academic side of you enabled you to get into a managerial position, which is great. Yeah, but yeah, they, they, they said if you play your cards right, you can be the you can have your own branch by the time you're thirty five. And I went, no, you're all right, and that's <laughs> and I resigned the next day. When I was twenty. <laughs> and I remember having a job once. Some bloke once saying, but "Yeah, you're telling me oh, you could work here, you know, holy life." And we could do this, you know. You fit in really well. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> 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 yeah, that's really nice of you. Oh, well, yeah, anyway, let's get let's get on to um, getting signed with yeah. um, Ultravox. Who came up with the name, by the way? Uh, John. Uh, John. Dennis, yeah. Right. Well, getting getting signed was this process of from 1973 to 1976. We had to. I held down a job. Warren and Chris were cleaning toilets or something in the middle of the night, night night jobs. Oh, my God. Steve Shears, the guitarist from Dagenham, he seemed to master the art of signing on. <laughs> Cheeky <laughs> bastard. But, uh, and John, I was at um, Royal College of Art, so he had his, had his crown. Uh, and, and we kept at it and kept at it, and we had that intermediary thing where we put a, a version of it misbehaving out and called Records, and it was for this soft porn film, but this, they took this other guy, this jazzers version of it, and I've forgotten his name, sorry, in, but didn't take our rock version of it. But that was fun, playing the violin solo on air misbehaving. And then we got the bit that uh, John said, oh, I've met this guy, he, he can get us into Polygram Studios at the weekend on downtime, called Steve Lillywhite. And uh, so it was in 1975 when we just crept in at the weekend what it was like. We were there all weekend, you know, till about six in the morning. 
That must have been a dream at the time. It was an absolute dream. And it was just, I don't know if you know where it is, it used to be, it was Stanhope Place, uh, just on the corner at the top of Edgeway Road. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. by Marble Arch, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we've Um, been seeing things that bands like Status Quo had been messing around with the night the day before, you know, editing bits, you know. Steve was saying, oh, yeah, status quo. Yeah, they did this. I was editing some stuff for them, you know. Stars. God, I'm, I'm only this far from being a star. <laughs> <So>. Right. <laughs> but you never know, do you? It's the classic thing. You don't know what you don't know. So you just, you, to me, uh, growing up in Sheffield, and probably to you in Huddersfield, it's like all that stuff. You see the big bands on Sheffield City or wherever it is, and you go, I... I you know, firstly, I don't think I'm a star. Secondly, where do you get your money from to have all that equipment is yeah. is what's going through my head, you know. And then, of course, in the late 70s, suddenly you've got this entire growth of kind of entry-level synthesizers, which you could actually purchase on higher purchase, you know. It seemed feasible then, whereas before then it was like Kraftwerk was a mate with... Moog, you know, or Moog or whatever you want to call him. And they had like their own bespoke. They, they were fucking loaded, right? So we weren't, you know. And um, yeah, so tell us about uh, meeting Brian Eno and all that stuff. Yeah. It, yeah, we, uh, yeah, we went in with um, Brian Eno. Uh, and uh, so it was co produced by Brian Eno uh, and us and Steve Lillywhite. And we went into the. Uh, it was in the basement at um, basement uh, a studio in uh, underneath uh, went the in St Peter's Square, and we just we just got on with it really dead quick. I mean, uh, we we were very well rehearsed. Uh, I mean, it was it was definitely a decision of direction at that time, and we'd had discussions and of the direction we were going to go, which was definitely more left field because when we were doing some rehearsals uh, sorry doing demos with Steve Lillywhite we did some quite poppy stuff but we just threw that stuff away but we like we all agreed that we liked pop music but we'd go down this other more radical uh, um, direction and of course we'd we'd done tracks like I Want to Be a Machine it was still quite a schizophrenic type um, first album for a band, you know, it wasn't going to hit you there yeah. between between guys, you know, and and this is something a criticism that Ultravox had, well, right from the first three albums that we were a little bit schizophrenic. <laughs> I mean, you had an identity with with the uh, uh, with the Human League. I saw you at um, at a gig in nineteen seventy eight at, at um, the Nashville. Oh my God! You know Bowie was there, right? Yeah, Bowie was there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know, and I just remember it's having you having an identity. It was quite earthy, and I could get what you were at. Yeah, I like the fact that it was earthy, and because it had um, no guitar, I like that because it was like exit rock and roll. I didn't listen to a lot of that with the pub bands and then the punk scene because I, I loved him going to lot, watch lots of bands. Before we signed, I used to go to see loads of bands, Kilburn and the High Rose. So to have no guitar, great. Uh, and um, it was troublesome for Ultravox at that time as well because I felt it was like 
a bit too many people in the band, you know, somehow <laughs> too many ideas. There was only five of us. So when I saw you, it was great immediately to hear the um, drums being replaced with drum machine, yeah. and they were up pretty pretty high. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, but but that that was a great experience, you know, because meanwhile while we were having problems with our identity a bit. We, we managed to get, because we got caught up in the punk scene, you know, and our second album was quite bitter, ha, ha, ha. We were quite bitter, just, you know, there's the title. It had some electric violin, and then it's some ad, outright punk stuff. So, you know, it was this schizophrenic sort of band that just didn't seem to find its place. And they would get played on the radio with something that was quite simple. That was me just playing an RMI piano, which sounded like an organ, really, yeah. with guitar, the track like Rock Rock. But it was like loads of swearing and stuff and swearing and cursing. You oh, know? No, you so it didn't, didn't last too long on the, <laughs> on Radio 1. Yeah, they won't do that. <laughs> and, but so, you know, when so at the same time in 1978, that was our last uh, try at having some kind of chart success as regards the the record company. But I think we did really find our direction and sound on Systems of Romance yeah. in certain parts of it, in certain parts of it. You know, like we were using my synthesizer as a bass drum on Dislocation, yeah. a track on, on Systems of Romance, and that was mind-blowing. I mean, I was doing the sequencer. It was nothing too amazing. It's just being triggered from the, from the bass drum, from the tape. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding. But um, when Warren let, let, he let loose on the ADSR, the shaping of the um, the attack of the sound, I'd make it into a, a heavy thud. And we were getting these bass drums. So things were like happening then, you know, which were like, hang on a minute, things really are changing. And we've got like the drum machine, the four on the floor feel, like for Quiet Man, the first time I heard the drum machine, uh, I think he just had the. Uh, I think he did have the, the the cube shaped one then, but for in 1977 we were using one for Hiroshima One and More, which just looked like something you'd have in your front room, you know, <laughs> like when when you worked at Hitachi yeah. uh, or something in Japan, you know, just as a hobby in the afternoon. But I think by Systems of Romance, no, I think we were still using that one, but we'd managed to separate the bass drum from the snare. So you could work on them separately. Yeah. So, so tracks like the Quiet Man were beginning to go more into an electronic area, but we still had the guitar featured quite a lot because at that time, still John really did like the guitar, but it was like snappy, snappy sort of whack, whack and and uh, very uh, what's the word uh, sound gated kind of thing. You know, so it's, yeah, uh, it was probably trying, to, it was probably trying to make it sound like a synthesizer. Yeah, compressed. Yeah, compressed. That's word. So it was whacking through the gates, you know, yeah, yeah. of the compression, and and so, but we just didn't really crack it, and we were just dropped, and that was it. Yeah, I think I think it was uh, primarily. I mean, we bought those albums, you know, myself and and uh, Ian and and Phil, and we. Oh, that's great. <laughs> no, that's that's great to hear. We were getting some. Feedback from musicians, you know, that we really like you. You know, yeah. I went to work with Gary Newman, and now they, they said, "Oh, come down here. There's, there's some guys want to meet you." And it, and it was in the in the hotel, and it was Simple Minds, and they were playing Systems of Romance, <laughs> and they were saying, "We really like this." 
And I was like, well, all right, well, that's fantastic. But it was a mixed feeling, you know, of like, well, we've just been dropped, you know. You were well respected as kind of almost like experimentalists in that, oh, that's great. that field. And that's um, I'm that's not just great. saying that to blow smoke up your ass. I mean, I, no, no, it's true. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah. Um, so when you met um, Gary, tell me about that. Well, that was um, Gary. Um, when, when I'd um, when we got back from America, we did this um, tour uh, in early 1979. When we came back, it was like backside at the ground. I was skint, and I started looking for work. And uh, it, it was yeah, I was, I, um, I auditioned to to be in a band for a, a like a. A poet, a uh, punk poet, uh, and but, that, but luckily, what happened was that um, the last gig that we did in, in the end of '78, just before New Year Eve, Rusty Egan came backstage, ah, Rusty. backstage, and uh, we'd been dropped by then, and he just said to me and Robin, "Come round, come round the corner to Billy's Club, and uh, and see, listen to this new uh, new club we're doing, where we where we're playing Bowie and." craft work so I did that really enjoyed it and and the next time I, I went there again this is before we went to America he introduced me to Midge who came down and did some DJing and I just loved the scene and it was seen and they were playing some Ultravox stuff so it was again it was like oh wow we were loved somewhere you know <laughs> fantastic hold your head up a bit you know and then they started talking about putting a band together. So um, I, uh, sorry, I'm digressing a little bit. So that was ironed out, and we started talking about a, a band. And, and we had a meeting with three guys from Visage, it's not from Visage, from Magazine. That was Dave Formula, John McGeeck, and Barry Adam, Ad, Adamson, Adamson, Barry Adamson, yeah. Uh, and... Uh, from that, I went to watch them at Jury Lane, at one of their gigs, just to familiarise myself more with magazine. We'd crossed paths a lot in Europe, but I didn't know that much about their music. And I went up to get a pint halfway through. Uh, uh, Simple Minds supported them, actually. And before they went on, and this guy comes up to me with Gary. Gary was the guy, that shy one in the background. And this guy, Steve, from Beggar's Banquet, came up and introduced me to Gary. And they were very quickly came out with, you know, we liked Ultravox and uh, would you be interested in uh, joining us on in Tubeway Army? Great. Tubeway Army then. And so that was a, a job. So, yeah, I, I, and I ended up rehearsing with Tubeway Army. I love Tubeway uh, For a club tour. Yeah, yeah. I love, I love Tubeway tour. Army. I thought... Um... They were they were very influential. I mean, you know, the, to, to, to my... Uh, kind of peer group they were anyway um our friends electric and yeah i just love yes and um so this is it you know when you say your when you say your your peer group because you i think you're quite a bit younger than me yeah and when and and uh and there was this whole bunch of people more your age that were being influenced in a way, and, and ready to produce something yourselves, you know. Exactly, exactly. So uh, that that went on for a while. How long were you with uh, uh, Gary then? How long did that last? Well, it was took a lot of the year. Uh, 
he gave me a lift home in his his car and, and showed me the uh, disc of um, our friends electric and just said we're putting this out uh, our friends electric picture disc and it was and instead of going out on a club tour we were doing these bigger places you know uh, like Hammersmith Apollo, like Hammersmith Audion, as it was then. So I did that tour with him. Oh. And it was fantastic. It was just great, great time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on, moving on to... Um, I mean, Visage, right? So, um, and and uh, and Midge and everything. Tell me about your relationship with Midge. Well, straight away, uh, I, we... we the relationship was good uh, because uh, I, what I what amazed me was that I'd found someone different uh, from John. John was more uh, controlling, and and he, he always sort of came in as if into the rehearsal as if, as if he he had the song and just wanted some musical assistance. Right, uh, and quite often I look at, and that came from all of us, but sometimes a lot of it came from me and then from that you get uh, a small amount of the of the publishing whereas with i was amazed when i met mention and we started working on the visage project in a rehearsal studio how open he was with his singing you know it wasn't like that with him he was interested in hearing my chord progressions beds beds so to speak yeah, yeah. that he could sing over and melodies so you saw something like a, what I was coming up with could be quite secure as a base for making a song, oh, you know, right. uh, and, and, and he knew that I was kind of a bit, I'd had some experience, you know, I'd been around the block a bit. So, and he could see that I love pop music just as, as much as him. And I could see that he loved pop music as well, you know. And, uh, and we had the mutual interest of synthesizers uh, using synthesizers, and and I felt happy in Visage because synthesizers could could come more to the fore. Yeah, that was going to be the main main part of, of Visage, and and I was just so knocked out to work with someone. Uh, I mean, I had people, him and Rusty, actually eking ideas out of me. I mean, sometimes I was shying away, you know, like I had ideas, some that had been rejected from for Systems of Romance. Uh, which was a slightly bitter pill to swallow because for Systems of Romance, I'd taken a Revox tone and done a few uh, instrumentals for possible use. And we played them in the uh, Island Music Publishing opposite the rehearsal place. I don't know if you know Island Records. Yeah, I do, yeah. St. Peter's Square. It was just opposite there. And John didn't buy it. The other guys were a bit intrigued, thinking, bloody hell, he's more of a clever bugger than we thought. <laughs> no, I know that sounds a bit big-headed, but some of them were looking like, oh, God, he's uh, he doesn't know his place, does he? <laughs> so it was a bit like John didn't really bite, uh, and I, I felt like I was still in this position where he was keeping a hold slightly over me, yeah. holding me back a bit. And um, even though I did do a heck of a lot of writing, on systems of romance, but they were all, like I said, these bits, just musical assistants, you know, putting bits in, but some of them were actually the chorus. 
like on Can't Stay Long. I mean, they were actually the cause. So, you know, I was with a position where it was wide open. We decided to split things equal, even though it was some people in the in the band, <laughs> you know, but it was equal, you know, it was all equal. And I, I just thought uh, that was a very nice release uh, uh, to just get back, uh, um, like I'm saying, Mind of a Toy. They were eking out ideas that I had on this tape that the band Autobox didn't like. And we and they said, oh, let's just use this for the opening starter. I'd been doing this thing called, you know, which was doing pianos. When I took when used the Revox, I was doing things, rotating pianos going round and round. Right. Just doing the same thing. Like, yeah, you know what I mean, don't you? So I'd do an idea, ding, 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 and then it start again, ding, 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 and then start again, you know, yeah. until there was all these ones all slightly behind each other, art basically, and uh, and and they were like, oh yeah, let's use that, and I was a bit like, oh, do you like it? <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> and they were surprised. So we started a pop song, you know, Mind of a Toy, doom doom, with my yeah. thing, and then in the middle when there's all the sound of the, the kids playing, happy and screaming, that's with my arty type music going on in the background. So we found a place for it eventually, uh, and. Uh, so, you know, it was fantastic times. But, of course, the main thing about it was the real buzz was it was connected to with the Gary Newman tour, really, because when I was working with Gary, I heard Chris Payne playing some stuff on the Polymoog, and I liked it, you know, this idea. So I got them in with Seth Sharpley. While we were doing the Visage stuff, we had started the Visage stuff. So when we came off the tour, I got them in into uh, the studio at Streetly, Martin Russian studio, which hadn't even been built yet. You and Lee did there, there the year after the year after. But this hadn't been built. We're in this prefab little house in his in his garden in his big of his big house. And I got those two guys to do come down and do the backing track of Fate to Grey. And then I gave that to Midge. And he came up with a great, a, a, what I consider a really good vocal, yeah. because it was just simple, and it was a melody. What with what what was going on? Do you know what I mean? It wasn't too much kind of thing. So right from the start, I felt that I had a lot of connection with Midge. He's a very sweet guy, Midge. He's pretty, yeah. I think. I mean, we've been friends for a very long time. So I've got a lot of time for him. Well, and John as well, to be honest. Different types of people, though, eh? Definitely. <laughs> you could say that. So yeah. did you do Live Aid? Yes. Oh, wow. That was uh, something. Tell me about that. Well, mm, <laughs> it was massive, wasn't it? You know, what can you say? It was massive. Uh, and... Um, Difficult times for Ultravox, though, because we were we'd just taking a year off because we weren't getting along and we were spending a year just thinking about whether we wanted to carry on. And in that year, Midge was going to do a solo album. So it was tense, to put it mildly. Oh, right. This was 1985. And, uh, and then when it happened, uh, the, uh, the Band-Aid thing, you know, um, well, that, we just went along with it, really. You know, what could you do? It was for charity. It was a massive uh, cause. Did you, did you enjoy it? 
Yes, I did. I enjoyed being up on, on stage. It was just very unusual being sort of led by the piper, you know, sort of Bob... Um, uh, what's his name? I, was nearly said, I nearly said Bob Dylan then. No, um, Bob Geldof. Bob Geldof. Yeah. Uh, I mean, which was unusual for me because I like to be on, under control. But it was for charity. You've just got to get rid of your ego. Yeah. And all your squabbling, and just do it. So when I was on stage, it was it was fantastic. We were loved, and it was an amazing experience. And I really enjoyed having the cameraman on me when I was playing the violin <laughs> and doing a bum, and doing a bum note. <laughs> no, you know, uh, it was just just amazing. I mean, the only downside from a musician's point of view was that because it had to be on a stage rotated round. Yeah, my keyboards were at the back of the stage. So it was a bit, I, I never played like that ever. I was always like, just I, like, so I could look along yeah, to Mitch. Exactly. So I, that made me feel uncomfortable. Like, instead of looking along, I, I looked along and there was Warren there on the drums, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Chris on, on the synthesizer at the back. But you can't complain. No, no, no. It was an amazing experience. And, and I, my heart was in my mouth because typical Ultravox. Because we'd had some time off, we started buying new gear. So I was actually using new gear, you know. Uh, and my heart was in my mouth wondering whether the stuff was going to work. Oh, shit. You know, a, ra a rack of DX7s, remember that? Right, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, the rack-mounted ones, yeah. 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 And, and I was playing a, a, a piano. I didn't use my Yamaha electric piano. I, uh, I put that to one side, which had been changed on the bass end, so it stopped feedback you know my, my, I had this a guy who worked for Ultravox who was a friend of mine from Huddersfield called Pete Wood he was electronics buffing yeah. he changed the bass end so it wouldn't feedback but instead I didn't I played a new um, Kurzweil oh right. I remember them yeah I hadn't really got much time I mean our rehearsals for just a few hours it, it was it was quite crazy Martin it was quite crazy we, we had one like one rehearsal and uh, Midge had started using the uh, the thing that had got sample. He did samples, right? Strings, right? Uh, what was it called? Oh God, I can't remember. I can't remember where you put a, a, a card in, but that was a bit flaky. <laughs> so we've got like new uh, new, new equipment. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, actually, yeah, we don't. No, we'd had that for quite a while. Yeah. So overall, uh, it was a it was an amazing experience. Oh, great. Okay, we're going to do this. We're getting towards the end now. So um, I'm going to do the actually some kind of stupid smash it type questions. Um, yeah. What's your favourite film? You, you, you keep breaking up. Oh, sorry, bit. mate. What's your favourite film? What's my favourite what? Film. Film? Oh, um... I do like films. I do a lot of watching films, but mostly on Netflix at the moment. Um, oh, I can't think. Sorry. All right, no worries. Pass <laughs> on that one. You're the first one to pass on that one. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Favourite TV show, then? Let's try that. TV show? Um, TV shows. <laughs> Screaming so, really well. Uh, All right. I, uh, I, I, what about? Oh, 
Fake our, fake our fortune. Oh, fake our fortune. Very funny. Okay. Um, um, your uh, other musical artist or composer? I think, um, oh, I don't know. I don't know. Top of my, top of my head, it's got to be uh, Bartok, I suppose. Oh, I love um, that. That's, nobody's said Bartok before, that's for sure. <laughs> that's great. Um, <laughs> ambition unfulfilled. Ambition unfulfilled. Um, Oh, to well, burning, burning shed are re-releasing all my albums. Are they? So albums on CD going backwards. We've got to my latest one, uh, Brushwork, Old Blast, and the, I love the that album. By the way, I was just oh. I was just listening to Shine. I had to put it on about three times in a row. I really like that. The mood of Thank that. Very much. Thank you very much. And they're releasing them all the way back. So I hope to be an absolute complete worldwide superstar. <laughs> Great. Um, Favourite visual artist? I mean, or conceptual artist, you know. Conceptual artist. Or visual. You know, I mean, well, just painter I've, or... I've just, I've painter. I've just been down to see What's-His-Face at uh, the Royal Academy. Um, our friend, our Yorkshire friend, the artist that moved to France. Um... um. Oh, sorry. We're doing well here. Yeah, we are. I, I, Me and Nate. Yeah. It's terrible. Well, you know the guy who does lovely pictures of uh, trees? It's on the tip of my tongue. Oh, I can't remember. His, I forgot his name. Sorry, I'm terrible with that. Which, um, which is your favourite synth? So, favourite synth? Yeah. Um, I liked, I got quite a lot out of the OBX. Right. The OBX. Okay, we'll go for that. And um and that and that is that is pretty much it. And thank you so much for your time today. I really I'm sorry for the technical issues, but this happens from oh, no problems, Martin. No problems, Martin. I really enjoyed it. And, thank you very much. And it'll really be coming out it. it'll be coming out soon and I'm sure there are you have very, very many fans out there who can't wait for this episode. So Well that's great, Martin. I'm really pleased that you asked me for this. It's it's really good asked me to do this. It's really good. Keep making music. Keep making music. Thank you, and you. All right, man. I'll see you later. See you soon. Cheers. Bye bye. there he was, Billy Curry, all laid out in front of you. I think he's a very talented guy. I've got a lot of respect for his traditional training in music. Um, quite unusual in this world, because most of the people I talk to are self-taught, including myself. Um, but he um, brought to the table a lot of stuff to do with traditional kind of classical music, actually, as well. And um, his writing and his current album... I've been listening to called the Brushwork Oblast, whatever that means. Um, it's really quite beautiful, and it, it, it's there's a kind of poignancy in his in in his musical writing, which I really like, and you can hear that thread going through a lot of the stuff he did with Ultravox and Visage. Just a little reminder that we are sponsored by SGM Concerts, who are also our promoters, and they're the biggest promoters in the country, pretty much. Uh, thank you for their support for the podcast. And also, if you want to support uh, future production um, of 
electronically yours if you're enjoying this and to keep it free for everyone who can't afford it if you can afford it uh it'd be great if you could become a patron and you do that by going to the electronically hours patron site patreon not patron patreon site and for the price of a cup of coffee or a pint of beer per month you will get lots of bonus episodes uh, special merchandise opportunities. You can get to talk to me directly on email. Uh, there'll be all sorts of things happening, like um, live streaming events um, and a just general sense of community. And the, th- the idea is that if you can afford it, it helps. It helps uh, pay for making because these uh, episodes cost money to create. It'll help pay for making them, so I can continue making them. Uh, in the future. So thank you very much. Hope you're having a good time. Now things are opening up a bit. We're doing gigs. A lot of people seem very happy about going to live music again. Um, And we're enjoying it. Um, Hope you are. Things are getting a little bit back to normal. Um, And um, don't feel quite as crazy all the time. And I hope you don't either... Uh, it's email time again. Uh, this is Dave Johnson. Firstly, revelation about the podcast. Thank you. I'll admit to not knowing a lot about you, except you've done a bit of work with Hem. A bit of work with Hem Seventeen. Uh, Forty years. Uh, Human League, likewise, and Mr. Vince Clark. I'm a fourteen-year-old, soon to be fifty, fan of all kinds of music. Blah blah blah. Uh, first serious date with the missus was to watch Newman. I digress. Thank you so much for opening my eyes to the likes of Sananda. I'll seek out more of his work for sure. Visconti interview, interview was brilliant, as was Niall Rogers, Maurice Hayes, Daniel Miller, Newman and Clark. My suggestions for guests. Alan Wilder, Martin Gore, David Gahan, Fletch, Trent Reznor. That I would love. Nick Kershaw, he's a mate of mine. Good idea. Um, That's it. Loyal listener, Dave Johnson. Thank you. Dave Winter. David Winter. Uh, Hi, Martin. Enjoying the podcast. Started with a Newman interview. Now listened to and enjoyed them all. Someone I would love to hear you talk to is Chris Merrick Hughes, drummer, songwriter, and very talented producer. Also, any of their members from Japan. We've got to do this Japan thing. I get so many requests, and I'd love to. I'm just not really sure how to contact them. Many thanks for many thanks for being a bright light here in the dark room here in Ireland. I co-present a show on Ram FM 80s Hit Radio. Would it be possible for you to do a jingle? Uh, saying, this is Martin Ware from Hem17, and you're listening to Wayne and Dave on Ram FM 80s Hit Radio. We are registered, but are free to air, non-commercial, and do it to keep the great music alive. There you go, David, it's there. If you're having any issues uh, for any reason, feel free to email me on electronicallymartin at gmail.com and um, maybe a few words might um, from me might help you in some respects. I don't know. Um, but you don't suffer alone, is what I say to you. You're never alone. So, on that bombshell, I'll have another great guest for you next week. 
and probably some extra episodes on Electronically Yours shortly as well. Electronically Ours, the Patreon site. So, until next week, bye! Bye!